presenta Galería Nocturna seen any night gallery before because that Roddy McDowell episode is still just so present in my mind. Oh yeah. Yeah. For for those of you who are newer to the show, um, this will be our third foray into the Night Gallery television series, which ran on NBC from 1970 to 1973. And its pilot episode, which was kind of infamous for people who are around when it aired, aired in December of 1969. The series was originally created by Rod Serling. Later, there was co-producer Jack Laird. We get into a whole lot of background on the creation of the show and kind of where it goes over the three seasons in our pilot episode for this this podcast, which was called Television Childhood Television Trauma and the Night Gallery Pilot. And then we also did a Night Gallery November episode in 2018. And you can find both of those episodes either on Apple Podcasts or on our homepage, which is thehauntedavenport.com, with photos and show notes. So if you are unfamiliar with Night Gallery and you're looking for some background, maybe check those episodes out um, in conjunction with this one. Uh, Otherwise, fair warning, we're going to discuss four story segments from the series tonight. Um, Well, whenever this is that you're listening to it, we're going to discuss four stories. And we're going to go into full spoilers for these. So I'm going to rattle off the titles real quick so that you know in case you don't want this spoiled. You can currently watch this series for free on NBC's website. They have a streaming service directly through their website right now. And all of Night Gallery is available for streaming for free with commercials. But it's good video quality and the commercials are quick and you can always hit that mute button. So um, for this episode, we're going to talk about... Uh, the story segment, The Little Black Bag, from season one. Make Me Laugh, also from season one. Death in the Family, from season two. And The Diary, also from season two. So, heads up, we're going to go full spoilers in our discussion for Night Gallery. But uh, before we get 
too far into it. Val, this was your first foray into Night Gallery episodes. What did you think of this series overall? So I've been a really big fan of Rod Serling's Twilight Zone series, like since Andy and I were like little kids. And so I think that like I knew I was going to enjoy Night Gallery because I enjoyed that other like anthology um, sci-fi and light horror series. And so, you know, seeing Rod Serling again, always a pleasure. I really like that he's like written the teleplay for so many of the episodes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I started, I watched the episodes that we were discussing in today's podcast chronologically, and I just instantly really enjoyed a uh, little black bag. I was just like, what a delightful time capsule of the seventies. Right? <laughs> I, I, I love their future. Again. Yeah. Yes. The, the, the future of 20, uh, 2098, which looks a lot like 1970. <laughs> it looks a lot like 1970. Um, it's amazing. So, if you remember from the Kojak episode that we we did, one of my favorite things was how often they used the phrase wino. Oh, right. <laughs> which comes up a lot in Little Black Bag. And I was just like, well, this is my jam. <laughs> well, let's go right into Little Black Bag then, since that's the first episode that aired originally in our little chronology of, of story segments. And there were other stories that aired in the same episode, it was season one, episode seven, according to the research we did. We don't, sometimes there's varying reports about when things originally aired, but for all intents and purposes, it was early into season one. And it originally aired December 23rd, 1970. Um, it was directed by Jeannot Svark. And if I'm butchering that name, I apologize. But um, he was a a director who did a lot of television and films, but you may know his work if you're a Jaws fan is because he did Jaws 2, and uh, he also did uh, 80s classic Supergirl and Somewhere in Time, which was a sci-fi film, which I still haven't seen. And this one, the story segment was written by Rod Serling, and it stars Burgess Meredith, who is just infinitely lovable, and he plays a down-on-his-luck alcoholic former doctor who finds a medical bag from 2098, which hence all the funny retro futurism that we are presented with in this episode. <laughs> so yeah, do you guys want to, I mean, Val, you kind of shared some thoughts. Andy, did you want to talk about this a little bit? Um, Yeah, originally this was one of my picks uh, for one of the episodes that we should watch because it um the the premise just stood out to me and I saw Burgess Meredith on the cast list and I was like oh this has got to be great I don't care what this is about um I was not expecting what we got though I wasn't expecting down on your luck to be you know an alcoholic living in the streets for 20 years um so that was interesting but the the it 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 definitely went a direction I wasn't expecting so I guess you know we're already talking about spoilers um, I was shocked by the ending. It, it, that one kind of came out of left field for me. Oh my god, it's, me too. Yeah, it's dark, and it's it's also especially heartbreaking because you really like Burgess Meredith's character, and you see him. He's he's completely renewed with this ability to help people. He saves the lives of several people before the end of the episode. And he genuinely feels like he has purpose again. And he's so excited at the possibility of what this medical bag and all this these uh, futuristic 
tools inside can do for society. And he doesn't want to make a dime off of it, but he, because he's been living on the streets, has been hanging out with just whoever else is around, and he, he has the misfortune of, of kind of attracting this very much dog-eat-dog mentality kind of dude who wants, he's just hanging around to drink all his wine and try and sponge off anything from anybody that they can. And, and you know, Burgess Meredith's kindness ends up being his own undoing in this. Yeah, the doc. Everyone just calls him doc. The guy, yeah. I, didn't remember, I didn't write down the name of the guy that um, is kind of hanging around him, the other kind of wino guy. But he's really creepy. There's a whole scene where Burgess Meredith is just talking about the endless possibilities of what could happen in, in society and how there's so much promise with this medical technology. And the, the guy who's hanging around him is just, like, standing behind him with his mouth agape for a really uncomfortable long amount of time. He's just standing there kind of like a fish and just yeah. thinking no, it, dark it, and thoughts. It, and it, the the way he's lit too is like three quarters in shadow and you, you yeah. can just kind of make out the expression on his face it's it's really unnerving right i was like super confused why he was doing that because like he had been like when there's a scene where um burgess meredith's character the doctor he's already performed sort of a, a miracle with this medical kit he found from the future and he has a better understanding of it now and so he and his buddy, who's creepy, is hanging out with him. They're, they go back to the shelter where they're staying, and one of their friends is dying of cancer. And so Burgess Meredith is like, he's going to live! And he, like, runs up the stairs with his medical kit and, like, screams at their caretaker to get out. Um, <laughs> and it's just terrifying. Right. Just, like, like, if you think of the caretaker, what he was thinking, yeah. we've got an yeah. old drunk yelling about how he's going to save somebody and he's wielding a <laughs> giant knife. Yeah. It's, I would like to point out that the scalpel from uh, 2098 is a butter knife. Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I told Allison. I'm like, knife. that's a freaking butter knife. Yeah. A sharpened in- butter knife. But yeah, so he like runs upstairs, but like his buddy is like a total advocate. He's like, no, the doctor is like, he's performing miracles with this. Like, he's a really good doctor again, inexplicably, like, don't ask any questions. Like he was his like hype man. And then he gets, he's corrupted by greed. Whereas the doctor is like socialized medicine. Like he just wants to go cure people who are sick and dying and who have, like, he doesn't want to get payment from that first family. Or from his buddy Charlie, who he cuts all the cancer out of. Like, right. I love the doc. He's it's great. Very, and I was I'm, really sad about his I know. And I, I, I knew this guy was the doc in socialized medicine. Then you've got his buddy standing behind him as the insurance company going, oh, oh yes. no. <laughs> or, or no, we can, we can hawk it for $8 and start buying bourbon. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. What was $8 in 1970? I meant to look that up. I wrote that down. <laughs> Oh, it was probably like, you know, like 25, 30 bucks. Yeah. 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 So get the good stuff. (laughs) There's even a line where he's like, we can get the good bourbon. Yeah. I also, I I just want to say, I love that the the inciting incident for this episode is um, like some technician in the time travel lab. Like, uh, sir, we, uh, we lost a medical bag. Uh, 
I think you guys yeah. were talking at the same time for a minute there, but so you're you're just saying that that the very beginning of the episode is when this is announced that a medical bag has been misplaced from 2098. <laughs> It just, it, the the premise that there's, like, some poor lab technician in 2098 who's, like, bottom of the rung in the time travel experiments department has to call his supervisor. <laughs> like, sir, this is uh, this is Tim down in time travel lab. We we lost a medical bag. We don't know where it is. You, you get the impression at the end that this has happened a few times before. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, like... Because jumping to the end real quick, just to because we're on that, like they they destroyed the medical bag from the future in the past with the flick of a switch. Like, wouldn't they just do that in the very beginning? Like, uh, we we left evidence of time travel in 1970. Let's just get rid of that right now. <laughs> no, yeah, they let it, it seems like linger for a while. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like a good first step you'd want to take before, you know, before this little adventure with future technology happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, that bag's probably expensive, so they're trying to get it back. I mean, <laughs> at least $5. Oh, sorry, what was that, Val? Oh, I said it's at least $35. Well, oh, it... but that's inflation going all the way to 2098, too, so you got to remember that. That's like probably forty five dollars. You're assuming by then. that they even have currency in that year. Like everybody was in oh, a are we Star Trek in, in a white room with a big computer and space pants. But I know I, I said space pants. Anyway. And now I'm just picturing Peter Dinklage in my head. But, um what I was gonna say is that at least in this story when the medical bag is first discovered, it's discovered by a guy who has a medical degree, so he at least understands to a certain degree what things are for because there's a certain amount of instruction included with the bag. So he's able to actually use things effectively. Right. Because if Wino number two would have found it, he would have <laughs> sold it for $8 and got himself some bourbon. Well, and then when he realizes that it's valuable, he decides to... Um, we we don't it's off camera but it's kind of implied that he does the doctor in in order to steal the bag because he thinks it should be for profit and he's insisting that they split it 50 50 and and um the doctor's saying no you know we're gonna advance medical science by a hundred years and it's gonna be miraculous and people are gonna benefit we're not gonna charge um but he does he decides to steal the doctor's idea of calling a conference with other doctors and giving a demonstration of how this scalpel works that's supposed to be able to only target diseased tissue and just sort of gently move everything, all the healthy tissue out of the way without slicing <laughs> through it, which almost seems like something you would do with like a radio wave or something, you know, like if you use some type of wave, light or radio wave technology rather than an actual... Sure. Scalpel, but you know, or a this microscopic, is... you know, laser something, Definitely but not a, a butter knife. But it's 1970, and it's a television show, so they have to be able to, you know, have something to show this idea that's tangible and inexpensive. So, so the guy ends up stealing the bag and stealing the demonstration, and and as he goes to put the scalpel to his throat to demonstrate, that's when the future calls and decides to disable the bag and all of its tools. So 
grisly ending. <laughs> yeah, I was so, I, sorry. The, the the doctors coming out of the conference, like, oh, the man could have had the decency to at least do it in his own home. I didn't need right. to see that. Like, what? You're in Night Gallery, not Twilight Zone, where Twilight Zone is sometimes really dark, but not quite on the level of macabre the way Night Gallery goes in a direction that's more like, you know, the future would see with, you know, shows like Tales from the Crypt. You get a show where people get their just desserts, but it's usually pretty grisly. Um, And Tales from the Crypt would probably show it a little because it came out later and people were a little more accustomed to having gore and violence on TV. And also it was on a pay, it was on a premium channel where you could get away with that kind of stuff, not on network TV, but yeah, this is, I mean, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking, but I think it was a good pick, Andy. I'm glad you picked it. And Burgess Meredith is great. And if for some reason you don't know who he is, um, you should definitely look him up. He was in all of the Rocky movies, I think, or at least, the first three. I'm not really big on that series, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's Rocky movies still coming right, out. Right, right, so yeah. So not in those ones. I forgot about that. They, they're still making <laughs> that. So anyway, he's 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 in the first three Rocky films. He's uh he's known by a lot of us who love the original Batman television series because he was the Penguin and he was a great Penguin and he even did cameos as the Penguin on other shows like The Monkeys. Um, he's the narrator for Twilight Zone the movie, so that's kind of a fun. Twilight Zone tie-in, but he had such a huge career where he was in all kinds of television and film, and just sort of one of those character actors that when you see him, you're instantly delighted that he's on the screen. Yeah, he used to do a lot of Broadway and stuff before he even got into television and movies, and when it first started up, just because of my nostalgic love for Burgess Meredith, like, I went through and scoured because I'm like, there's got to be some place that he's played Scrooge in something, but there wasn't from what I could find. He would have been a, such a great Scrooge. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I knew Burgess Meredith from, and I didn't realize it was him until I like looked up his actor's information is he was on the Hollywood blacklist with his wife at the time, Paulette oh. Godard, who is Charlie Chaplin's ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so Paulette Godard and um, Burgess Meredith were both part of like the Hollywood back blacklist um, anti-communist movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like it really it stagnated her career. His career recovered just fine because he went on to like, you know, be in the Rocky movies. And he was in an episode of that that Shelley Duvall show where oh. she hosted the fairy tales show. Yeah. Yeah. That show if we want to talk about, like, childhood television trauma, that show traumatized me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he, like, he's amazing. He was also in my my absolute favorite Twilight Zone episode, which is the one with the bank teller who just wants to read his goddamn book. Oh, yeah. yeah. Classic. That's him! I feel like that's, like, the Twilight Zone episode that gets talked about the most. It's such a good episode. I I did not know that he was blacklisted. Thanks for bringing that up, Val. Yeah, because um, you know, obviously a commie. You saw what a socialist doctor he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was trying to get free medicine to the people. Fuck and that. For some reason, that makes people insanely angry. I don't know why. It's weird. Um, Paulette Godard, because she was also like a big like Hollywood's like star at that point, because she had been in several 
Charlie Chaplin films and she had been married to Charlie Chaplin, very, you know, a famous bachelor about town. Yeah. Um, and like she, she has a quote where she's speaking to Burgess Meredith and they're being swarmed by um, anti-communist like protesters, like outside of their home or like the Hollywood lot or something, because she had a relationship with director David O. Selznick, who was like a big, like mm -hmm. golden era of Hollywood director. Um, she was like, should I slap the, should I slap them illustrating their protesters with my diamonds? And then just kind of like laughing about it because <laughs> the whole situation was just so outlandish. Fantastic. And I, I learned all about that from the podcast. Um, you must remember this, which has a yes. whole season. Yeah. I listened to that Amazing. whole series and somehow completely like spaced out on the, the fact that Burgess Meredith was part of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Hollywood back blacklist season is so incredibly informative and just teaches you a lot about American history in general, because like Karina Longworth is like, we stand a queen. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely a highly recommended show. If you've never checked that out and you're interested in all of the depressing messed up backstories of Hollywood oh, from God. the last century, it's all bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad all the way down. Right. The, I mean, it's 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 a it's a podcast you can listen to, and then when the Me Too movement happened in Hollywood, you're like, how is anyone surprised that this has been happening to people? Right? Like, really? <laughs> Does anybody have any final thoughts before we move on to the next segment? Uh, nope. Nope. I I did want to say I looked up the the second uh, homeless person's name, and it, he is apparently played by Chill Willis. <laughs> yeah, I looked that up too. That's such a great name. He kind of looks yeah, like somebody you'd see like in a in a '60s western as kind of a background character. He does. Yeah, he's totally got that kind of rough around the edges. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And I feel bad that I didn't say his name and look that up. Um, I kind of put together my notes on the fly, but <laughs> he doesn't. He he's a, gives a chilling performance in this. All right, guys. Well, um, on to our next segment then, which is from season one and episode 11, Make Me Laugh, which originally aired on January 6th, 1971. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, who also directed one of the segments of the Night Gallery pilot. If you weren't already familiar with that, please check that pilot out. It's excellent. Um, and Are this you sure you're pronouncing that name right, too? Spielberg? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Rit Who is that guy anyway? Anyway, this one was also written by Rod Serling. And Rod Serling pretty much wrote all of the segments that we're covering tonight, but he did not write all of the segments for the series. There were other guest writers, and then um, uh, co-producer Jack Laird came in and wrote a few, uh, kind of some of the more comedic ones. But this is a really easy way to tell if he wrote it or not, usually if it has any kind of political undertone. <laughs> it was a Rod Serling. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, Jack Laird was also known for kind of the more goofy ones. Right. Um, but not always. Sometimes he'd do, do a straight creepy one. But, yeah, so so anyway, back to, back to this one, Make Me Laugh, stars Godfrey Cambridge as a failing comic who's desperate for laughs, and after really bombing on stage at a nearby bar, he meets a 
down on his luck bumbling miracle worker and makes a deal to basically make everybody laugh all the time. So, do <laughs> you want to get into this segment? Yeah. So, I was super confused, um, just, like, because, like, when Allison sent out the episode list of, like, what we should watch and discuss, I was like, what is a miracle worker? What What is that profession? And it's like, he's like a like a caricature of like a guru or kind right? of a genie i thought maybe yeah. like is jackie yeah, he's, he's wearing like a turban yeah he's wearing a turban and jackie vernon who plays the miracle worker like he he's wearing some like real light brown face yeah <laughs> you know yeah, for the is. time but i was like what like i didn't fully understand like what this uh what this character was because it seemed so out of out of place and out of time. And I was like, oh, he's like a genie. Okay, I get it. Like, what does a miracle work? Why well, does I he thought only- about, there's some Twilight Zone episodes involving angels being dispatched to Earth to deal with people who are, you know, problem customers or something. Yeah. I don't know. You, so you get that kind of like, that fantasy version of, that there's sort of like a bureaucratic department of helpers that are otherworldly <laughs> assigned to people. And so I just kind of got this impression that he's kind of a, a subpar genie who's trying to help people. Kind of like, um, if Wasn't... you ever watched Bewitched, it's sort of like um, the Aunt, Aunt Clara who collects doorknobs and all our spells come out wrong. I kind of felt like he was like the genie version of Aunt Clara. Wasn't there like a mention in the very beginning that he had to like perform a miracle a year or something? Like, he was, like, on he his last a, hour of yeah. filling out a miracle, and so he was looking for somebody desperate who didn't I, care if their miracle sucked. <laughs> and he warns, he warns the comic that, you know, he's like, they don't turn out so good, the miracles yeah. they do for people. It's, like it's a kind of a monkey's, monkey's paw, paw situation. Yeah, it's, it's a monkey's paw thing. It's a monkey's paw. <laughs> Yeah, and but it's only it's it's a single use monkey's paw. Well, yeah. now it's a double use monkey's paw, and it ends in a monkey's paw fashion. So yeah. <laughs> Spoiler Again. alert! Doesn't go well for the comedian. Yeah, oh gee, you mean you mean a protagonist who gets a, a a wish for free doesn't have a happy ending in the night gallery? Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure every night gallery. Spoiler alert! It doesn't end well for them. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are there are occasionally there's ones that end either in a humorous way sure. or a light a lighter way surprise oh god yeah surprise with john carradine we talked about that in our uh 2018 episode on night gallery november so if you want to know about surprise you can you can listen to that but um so i just wanted to mention that godfrey cambridge was he was in several films during his career, but he also was a stand-up comedian, so I feel like this was something he could really relate to. Apparently, he was kind of a stand-up contemporary and did similar circuits with Bill Cosby, Um, so he was, you know, coming up around the same time as Bill Cosby was getting big, and he could probably, as an actor, deeply relate to the terror of doing stand-up and bombing in front of your audience, which Every time I ever watch stand-up, especially when it's, like, um, sort of, like, an open mic or, like, amateur or newer comics, I always 
feel intensely for them. Like, oh, God, like, why would you put yourself up there? This looks like such a hard profession. And he's just, in this episode, he's just, like, drenched with sweat as he's trying everything, every trick in the book that he knows and all of his jokes. to. to oh, this... he even has a sound maker. Yeah, the sound oh, maker's terrible. But also, yes. his audience... Is we learn, you know, he introduces some dancing girls, and I feel like the audience is really just there for the dancing girls. They don't have time for him, and so it's the cards are kind of stacked against him, I think, to begin with. But he's just so desperate to get work, and he's not doing well. And then suddenly, when this miracle's granted, everything everybody says to him is suddenly hilarious, and. I should mention also his agent is played by, um, oh, I, to, I re- forgot to write down the name of the name of the agent, but it's, um, his agent is kind of like bails on him and then comes back when he's successful, but um, it's Arnold from Happy Days, it's Sheriff. No, it's not Arnold. It's, not, sorry, not Arnold from Happy Days. Um, it's the dad. The dad from Happy Days, and he's, um, he's the sheriff, Sheriff Tupper in Murder, She Wrote, and he's, he just, such a recognizable face. He's also in... Tom Bosley. Yes, Tom Bosley. Yes. And also, this is his second appearance on Night Gallery because he is also in the pilot segment directed also by Steven Spielberg called Eyes, starring Joan Crawford. So he's this is his second time around being on Night Gallery. And he's just... A, he's kind of a, plays a lovable schlub a lot of the times. I adored him on Murder, She Wrote. That's where I recognized his name from. I also feel like Tom Bosley, like, that's, like, the punchline of, like, a TV show that I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, there's, like, something where it's, like, someone is just, like, exclaiming Tom Bosley, and it's, like, (laughs) that name sounds so familiar, and I can't, for the life of me, remember. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's, you know, he's not in the whole episode because he's the agent who kind of ducks out and comes back. But it's kind of interesting after um, the comic becomes successful, his agent is able to have a conversation with him without bursting into laughter, which we were kind of wondering about. We thought, well, maybe it's not all the time, or maybe it's only just, you know, when it's, he's saying things that are kind of funny, but when he first gets, the gift of making everyone laugh, he's just saying things. They're not meant to be funny, and everyone's just laughing. And then mm. that, so it's a little weird. I mean, it's just like a weird little nitpick, but it's, it's like, what are the parameters of this gift? Because it's obviously torturing him because he's no longer um, has the creative fire of having to work for something. Yeah. I, I actually, yeah, one of my gripes with this is I think if they'd established some consistency that like, he, you know, everything he says makes people laugh and that the the horrible twist tragedy at the end is that he like, you know, comes across somebody dying or something and he tries to get them help and everybody just laughs at him because they think it's a hilarious joke. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that I, I think that would have had a bigger impact, but it, you know, it, it ended well enough, I think. I do think him auditioning for a serious role though is pretty heartbreaking when the people that are hearing the audition just keep cracking up and he's portraying a clown who is very, very sad and very depressed. And so it's like, again, he's just doing this role of, I want to express my darker side. And and you often, it made me sing that scene made me think about 
um, a lot of famous comedians who've gone on to do some serious films and it's often been really well done. You know, I think of like roles that like Jim Carrey's done that have been more serious that are fairly depressing or upsetting or, you know, you just, you see that people have some range um, or like, I think, you know, like Adam Sandler is a good example. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking how there's probably as someone who has no experience in the realm of comedy, but I just think there's, there must be that need to kind of diversify your creative outlet and you don't want to be a one trick pony, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And usually to be a good comic, there's a lot of darkness that you're processing inside. So I feel like actually comics are probably well suited to doing darker, more dramatic performances because they carry that inside of them and they've been using the comedy to try to like mitigate or heal that. Mm -hmm. That's actually uh, one thing I wanted to mention is this, this came out way, way before um, the King of Comedy, but I got some very heavy King of Comedy vibes from this episode. I've Um, never seen that. Oh, I um, am. This is uh, a bit of a tangent, but before I still haven't seen the movie Joker, but Mm -hmm. everyone who's seen the movie Joker tells me you don't really need to watch it. If you've ever seen Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, because it, it basically riffs on those two. Yeah. Um, Which so all two, three of them Robert De Niro's in. Yes. Um, so it's like then, a Robert De Niro trilogy. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> a weird, uh, weird. That would be an odd day to just watch those three in a row. Uh, it, you'd be so tired afterwards. Oh, it'd be just depressing. Feel oh, very God. alien. Yeah. So. Real quick sidetrack is I um I work in I work in bars and the bars that I work with the the connection of all of them sometimes they have uh, movie theaters and I was working one of the movie theater bars and it was while Joker was playing and it wasn't a bar where like it's outside the theater it's literally just behind a curtain so I like had to watch but not watch, listen to the Joker on repeat for a day. That was such a depressing day. That would be so hard. Just like I saw Joker over the, over the summer um, back when I still had HBO and you know, it was just like, I wanted to see it because I heard it was very good, but I also was like, everything is so, you know, pandemic summer i'm watching joker what's going on <laughs> who am i what does anything mean yeah i went through shining this summer stuff. so i get you <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i i think i watched joker and midsommar in the same day oh, oh. God. oh, God. oh. I was clearly like working through some stuff just like in my apartment <laughs> with my cats you know oh. that's rough total total side note not to get too dark but like i think it was the day after election day i just (laughs) like my anxiety just from all the things was too much and i like was trying to do some yoga and i ended up like on my yoga mat like ugly cry slash sobbing and i totally felt like i was in midsummer for like 10 minutes like this is this is that place I am in that place right now. <laughs> oh. Yeah, literally 
yesterday, I was just, it was so rainy and so dark. And I think it was like, honestly, like 4.30. So not even at night or anything, but I had like gone out to run an errand and it, it was just like really stressful because in the state that we all live in, in Oregon, there's a bunch of like recent new COVID-19 restrictions. And it's just like, I just felt anxious. And then I just, I drove home and just sat in my car for like 40 minutes, just kind of like intermittently texting my friends and then just kind of like open mouth sobbing yep. to like really yep. just like get it out. And it's like, I wasn't necessarily sad about anything. I was just like, you just got to make space for it. You know, sure. it's just open mouth midsummer cry. Yeah. You got to purge with some ugly cry. You got what yeah. you want about Ari Aster's films, but he gets the grief. Not <laughs> yes, what I want out of a horror movie, but man, is it relatable. <laughs> oh. But yeah, so my 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 original point is, if you liked this episode, then you might be interested in The King of Comedy, a Robert De Niro yes. movie. <laughs> so. And then after that, maybe take some vitamin D and try to get some sunlight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe do that because you know that uh, that 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 emotional anxiety it's in the air for a lot of people, at least at least in Oregon. Oh yeah, yeah, all year. All year. Mm-hmm. Um, what I thought was I funny. Did... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, just one one little thing I noticed in this episode. I really liked after his first set where he bombs on stage um, and the guy comes in and is like, ah, you're fired. Um, I really liked their little repartee about, uh, like, how the audience is, is was cold or whether or not it's hot. He's like, oh, you couldn't get a laugh out of a crowd in a boiler room, kid. It's the actor who plays <laughs> Grandpa Munster. Al Lewis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just for a quick bit. They got the best celebrity cameos on this show. It's like everybody, I mean, Vincent Price is on here a couple times. So, and I mean, just this episode alone is, it's got the dad from Happy Days. It's got Grandpa from the Munsters. And then the miracle worker is Frosty the Snowman. Oh, right. That's what I was going to say. It's Frosty Wait, in, from in... Frankin and Bath. Really? Yeah, he's the voice of Frosty in all the Frosty cartoons. Yeah. Oh. So not the Rankin and Bass. That's um. Rankin and Bass did the Frosty cartoon. Oh, they did the the cartoon cartoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it the okay. snowman? Yeah. I just think of Rudolph, the snowman from that, is um, by um. That's isn't that Burl Ives? Yeah. Yeah, that's Burl Ives. But yeah, he's a uh, he's Frosty, which is so weird. <laughs> Frosty is a very not racially sensitive genie. I also think that if Frosty was going to grant wishes, they might turn out half-baked like they do in this story. <laughs> Frosty is not good at stuff. Like, no. no. He yeah, should if not he granted wishes, it wouldn't be good. We should, we should do a holiday episode about, like, the like the terrible dystopia that is children's programming (laughs) because it's just like no don't let those children follow around this new demigod that they've created using dark magic (laughs) (laughs) okay so i've never thought of it that way but yeah there's i I, i'd be they summoned frosty from hell oh literally a golem like they put a bunch of materials together and imbue it with their with their magic Mm-hmm. There's like if, a cursed object. If you ever want to be like terrified slash laugh out loud entertained, 
there's, I think on YouTube, there's a bunch of old 80s clips from like the 700 Club where they talk about satanic children's cartoons and oh, why are the Smurfs blue? Are they the undead? <laughs> you know, He-Man and She-Ra teaches sorcery and necromancy. So it's like what you're talking about, like that would totally fit in there. <laughs> I feel like that resonates with me um, because I really like to portend to be really anti-magic. Like, one of my favorite things to do is to cry at sleight of hand. Because yeah. I don't like being tricked. <laughs> <laughs> or there's, I think there's a, there's a Parks and Recreation episode about where they mentioned that, like, there was a magician and he scared everybody. Oh, and, they, and so like, they hung him? They hung him. And, and then, <laughs> like, you find out it was, <laughs> like, ten years ago. You're like, it was, that was in the 70s. <laughs> There was a kid in my dorm who, like, I was telling this story to, to my boyfriend the other day. I was like, listen, like, I'm not joking. I don't approve of magic. I don't like it. I really strongly dislike the Harry Potter franchise because of the magic aspect, like, <sighs> author aside. But, like, I don't approve of it. And a lot of it came from, like, it was, like, week two in the dorms. And this guy just comes in and he's going around meeting people and he's doing cards tricks oh and no, who you stay away that? from that guy the audacity he like i know he's not listening but neil if you're out there like, like i still don't forgive you <laughs> <laughs> i feel that way about mimes and i was yeah. like lightly assaulted by one once as a, as a 13 year old so um <laughs> that's a story for another time <laughs> we digress but magic is not good because it is lies for your brain. <laughs> oh, man. I got an, an ex-coworker that used to do, like, little sleight-of-hand magic stuff. And he was telling me one story one time, because he would do it all the time. And when he'd learn new tricks, he would, like, show his daughter. And his oh. daughter at the time was probably, like, 8 or 10, somewhere in that range. And I guess he showed her a new trick, and she just looks at him sadly and says, is it because you just have to? <laughs> oh, my gosh! Anyways, back to Make Me Laugh with all yes. the great cameos. Make um, me it laugh ends really badly, because that's how these things in well he instead of he doesn't learn his lesson that like you you really need to be like an attorney with this where you need to have very specific requests with parameters right. otherwise you're gonna get screwed because he you just gotta says, read the fine print he says i want to make people laugh and then he realizes you know he wasn't specific enough but so he follows that up instead of asking you know i want you to to reverse it or I want to be able to make people laugh only when I'm on stage or whatever, you know, whatever it is that he would have really preferred to have happen. He doesn't spell that out. He says, I want to make people cry. And he gets his wish in true monkey's paw fashion and gets hit by a car. Literally like 30 seconds after getting like, making his wish he mm -hmm. gets hit by a car frosty the snowman grants his wish and then he gets mowed down in the street and then you because it cuts to a, a woman across the street crying sorry val what was that oh no he like he 
he goes to the the miracle worker Jackie Vernon again and is like, listen, this wish sucks. I don't like it. And then Jackie Vernon's like, well, you can't have another one, one wish per customer, which he did not mention at the beginning. So <laughs> that's nope, just another thing about people who do magic is that they lie. Um, but well, he's not also, a very like, good miracle worker. No, he's not a good miracle worker. I'm granted he does he does tell him that at the beginning of the episode. But anyway, so um Godfrey Cambridge is like, well, I don't believe you because like you did such a poor job granting the wish initially. So he literally walks across the street, like does not look both ways and starts hollering at a woman who is dressed up as the flower saleswoman from Mary Poppins um, Mm -hmm. with the hat and everything. Like there's one woman who does all of that. And then he gets hit with a car. He just gets like smushed. He becomes street pizza. Because he wasn't looking. I don't think that was the wish. I think that was um, hubris for just believing you can walk out into the street and just that's yeah. okay. Uh, by the way, Street Pizza, calling it new band name. <laughs> 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 yeah, I just want, at the very, very end, I really, my biggest love of this episode is, and it's just muttered so quietly that you kind of miss it, is the miracle workers walking away and as he passes the old lady crying, he mutters to himself, I wonder if I'll ever get it right. <laughs> There's a tra- trail of bodies behind me. Right. And I'm just gonna it's do- like every year he just kills another one. <laughs> Maybe he's really a reaper, but they told him he's a wish maker. Oh. So they just said, <laughs> he doesn't know his actual job title. I don't know. Oh, God. He's actually, um, no one will get this reference, but he's dressed like Cora Pandit. Cor- oh, Cora Pandit? Yeah. Um, I, if people have seen that, seen the Ed Wood film or know anything about the Ed Wood c- film scene back in the day, they might know who Cor- Cora Pandit is, but... He was, um, like, one of the originators of the musical, uh, genre of Exotica. Ooh. What yeah. is Exotica? Yeah, it's basically, it's uh, music that seems like it's from exotic lands, but really isn't. So kind of oh. like sleight of hand magic. It's, um, oh, I don't like lies, Drew. <laughs> I don't like it. It's, it's sort of, I guess you could call it cultural appropriation jazz. Um, but oh, cool. It, but that would be really dismissive because it's really, it's, it, really is mixed in a way to become its own thing, but it's inspired by a lot of sounds of music from from faraway exotic places, or at least people places people thought were exotic in the 50s. And oh, like Vampire Weekend. <laughs> you know, I've never never heard them, but sure. Yeah, sort <laughs> of. That's uh, a, that's yeah, my... Yeah, he was one of the... Because in the beginning, like a, a lot of Exotica stuff was people that were slightly foreign would then play slightly foreign music and make up these like very foreign personas even though you know like they were born in new jersey they'd be like oh i'm you know one of the high deities of the such and such tribes of you know whatever there's usually a lot of vibraphone and bird noises fantastic (laughs) Right, and the later stuff, the, the what what became Exotica after it all. We're so far off track, guys. <laughs> it is time oh, to stop now. Okay. Let's move to the next Sorry. episode. 
I'm going to move us along to her next story segment because I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about this one, too. It's from Season 2, Episode 22, and the story is titled Death in the Family, which aired originally September 22nd, 1971. And this one was also directed by Jeannot Slavark. So you got to hear me butcher that name twice today. Awesome. And also written by Rod Serling. And it stars E.G. Marshall and Desi Arnaz Jr. And if you're a Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz fan, you would know that that's their son, who was, you know, kind of a big deal and pop figure at the time. And Desi Arnaz Jr. plays a young guy on the run from the law. He is wounded and bleeding, and they're doing a whole manhunt for him. And he invades the the nearby funeral home that's run by E.G. Marshall's character, who is a kindly mortician who we learn is a bit, a little bit mentally disturbed. His heart's in the right place. Maybe a little too kindly. He's doing, he's, he's, he's not, he's not a well-adjusted guy, which is not what you want to think about your, your mortician, but you know, you also want them to be empathetic and kind and presiding over a loved one's death. And at, at first you just think, well, this guy's a total sweetheart and exactly who you would want taking care of your family member. But we learn as we go on that, Whenever someone comes in who doesn't have any loved ones and has basically been unclaimed, he decides to unclaimed loved ones. He well, he decides he makes ins- them his loved ones. Instead of burying them, he embalms them and keeps them in the funeral home as his family. So, and we we see we see that kind of early on. Um, but Desi Arnaz Jr. as as this guy who's wounded and afraid and he he busts in through a window and basically is threatening but then starts to let his guard down when he sees how kind and concerned this mortician seems to be mm-hmm. and it's very macabre it's very much like something out of a tales from the crypt comic i could almost swear there this was based on a short story i believe of the same name and i i did not I do not have the name of the original author in front of me because this was adapted by Rod Sterling. He didn't write the original story. I could could swear that I saw this in the same story in either comic book form or read it as a short story once as a kid. It definitely um, like it says that the story is by Miriam Allen, Allen DeFord. Okay, yeah. It's funny because the first episode that we talked about, Little Black Bag, is also adapted, like loosely adapted from a science fiction story, a short story mm-hmm. from like a very celebrated science fiction author, um, Cyril uh, Cornbluth. Okay. <laughs> Just like a fun fact. But yeah. Sure. <laughs> right. And if like that seemed like it went through spoiling super fast. Um, not really, because this episode, you basically know where it's going from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, you see a man who's basically, you know, destined for what they usually call Potter's Field, you know, the people who don't have the money to pay for their own burial and no family show up to claim the body. He's brought to the mortuary with instructions and some money from the county. And 
Um, the mortician is basically, you know, he feels sorry for the guy and he says, wow, you lived, you know, he talks to the corpse and he's like, you lived such a long time. You deserve more than, you know, what they're giving you. And and then he's like, don't worry, you've come to the right place. And, Aww. you know, later cut to he's singing, he's a god for he's a jolly good fellow. And we see this um, corpse of this elderly old man sitting in, you know, sitting upright in the chair in a nice suit with a party hat on. Or no, he doesn't have the party hat on until later. But anyway, right. he's in the, yeah, she's upright like, in the chair. Spoiler. Right. There's a party later. There is. Yeah. There is a party later. No, that was, a little um, bit of a party. Homecoming yeah, the, party. The, the dialogue when they uh, bring the first guy's corpse in, when they're like, look, you know, we're from the county. We have the money. You know, any mourners or anything, that's up to you. This guy lived in an old folks home for like 20 years. He's got nobody left. So, you know, that's sorry. Um, that, you know, that that still rings true today. There's still people living and dying like that. And it's oh, yeah. heartbreaking. Really. It is. Um, and it's nice to think that someone who's, you know, in the system processing their burial would actually want to show them some compassion and care. Um not in the manner that this character does, <laughs> yeah. but you'd like to, Prop them up you'd in like the to think that, you know, I mean, it's, there's, there are some very compassionate, wonderful people in, in the death care field. And I think, um, and I think that's important to mention. I think sometimes morticians get stigmatized as being creepy. And I think that they perform a really important service and are immediately immersed in a reality that most of us would like to pretend doesn't exist. And so I just, I don't know, I kind of felt for this character. And um, and I also love things that have kind of a bit of a old-timey, funerary, macabre touch, you know? It's, his, the mortuary home is pretty amazing. It's really wonderfully decorated and very old-fashioned. And he's hanging out, playing his organ in his spare time, you know? Just, <laughs> it's so good. Um, so I, I picked this one because I just, I'd forgotten that it was, I actually think I thought it was an episode of another show and when I remember that this was a night gallery episode I got excited and I was like oh I really like this one it's it's got some great tales from the crypt comic book vibes and it's just such a um such a creepy story but but also kind of heartbreaking because you kind of feel for these characters there's a whole level of depth to both characters because you you know you kind of get to know a little bit about Desi Arnaz Jr.'s character that he's just had a rough life and violence is kind of all he's ever known and it's it's brought him a bad end. Right. And then he finally killed a man and then he got life in prison because of it. Yep. And then and, uh, then he got shot up because he it, it's never really clear. He tried to escape from the police or something. Yeah, I think yeah. he like, escaped prison and got shot in the process. And then... Um, and so basically, you know, he starts to trust the mortician and he learns basically around the same time that the police are making their rounds to knock on doors and sweep houses to look for him. He realizes that the mortician has this collection of corpses down in the basement of the mortuary in this ornate parlor room that he's created and they're all staged for a welcome home party for the latest edition. Right. Because and... apparently the mortician <laughs> grew up in an orphanage and never had a family. So he's collecting a family of unclaimed corpses. Yeah. Which is both sweet and 
terribly sad, but yes. Okay, so so this episode, I will say, like I I had it on while I was like doing dishes, and so I was like watching it, but also like I was gonna go back and rewatch it again. But when Desi Arnaz Jr. first like is in the the mortuary and he peeps into the the dining room and he sees the old man and you realize like oh the reason why the coffin was so light was not because he was an old person it's because there was no one in that coffin they Mm -hmm. buried an empty box because he had other plans for this old man's (laughs) body he was gonna throw him a party He's gonna throw him a party and that legitimately creeped me out like I didn't find the other two episodes I watched creepy and I was like that's so gross I don't know there's just something about that it's like that I don't like that I don't like that at all that's so that's so creepy um hey, hey mister then, is there a stiff sitting at that table yes <laughs> <laughs> but then like when Desi Arnaz Jr. wakes up from his his nap on the sofa that he falls into after he and the the mortician have like a heart to heart and he comes down and there's like two children. There's yeah. like two little girls and they're not claimed like the by shining anyone. twins. Yeah. And they're looking at each other and, it's gr- <laughs> and they're all wearing party hats. Like, yeah, there's, there's stage. Like when it reminds me of when people do really animated poses for taxidermy not to be too gross but like it kind of seemed like you know when people are like well I want this taxidermy to be really lifelike and people get really creeped out by that too but um I kind of felt like that's he was going for the illusion of life even in death and I also it's hard because these are all actors holding really still pretending to be corpses in this scene Mm -hmm. and so it's also really it's just it's kind of interesting to think about how this was shot with all these people trying to hold really still. And I think they do a really good job. Like you catch the occasional like slight movement, but I think it's a really well shot scene and it would have been really hard to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. No, overall I am. Um, I, I was wondering for parts of it is like, wow, are those, are those actors or they go like wax dummies? Cause this looks like really good, but yeah. I'm pretty um, sure yeah, it's I just think... actors with makeup. Yeah. You can see a move every once in a while. Yeah, I didn't realize that they were alive until... Oh, sorry. I didn't realize they were alive until um, the party scene when they're all wearing party hats. Uh Uh-huh. There's so many people in the room. But when it was just the old man, like, at first, I thought it was, like, a mannequin or something like that. Um, But fun fact, it's actually a form of necrophilia to just keep a preserved corpse around. Sure. Like, Norman Bates. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it doesn't all have to be, um, you know, a sexual paraphilia. It's just, like, keeping a corpse around is necrophilia. Also, keeping parts of a corpse around, technically necrophilia. Does it does it have to be a whole corpse? Because I have some deer bones. Does that make me a necrophiliac? <laughs> um, I, I think necrophilia <laughs> only applies to, to hu- humans. Yeah, um, so you're okay. probably fine. Although, like, we'll probably <laughs> circle back to that. I found them while I was hiking. Come on. Well, we'll just circle back to that. We don't have to do that right now. We'll just <laughs> we'll, just, we'll put a pin in, in while you're collecting animal parts, and we'll just we'll just come back to it later. Andy, it's okay. <laughs> I got some dead stuff too. You know, he does live so in all- Portland. It's you move here, and they give you a package that has antlers and some skulls <laughs> and some turquoise painted feathers 
and a logo <laughs> that has two arrows making a cross on the front of it. That's fair. That is fair. Your hipster I think package. That, yes. Yeah, I think I got that in the mail a couple mm -hmm. years ago. So I believe, yeah. But again, like Andy doesn't live in Portland, not to nitpick. Uh, Ooh, so we're going to circle whoa. back to that. Whoa. Shot fired. Yeah, but now. you know what? That, that aesthetic has, bl has bled out into the suburbs. So That's true. They yeah. got it down in Southern Oregon now. I'm pretty sure I was at a, a vintage mall in Southern Oregon last time I was down there, and there was a spray-painted gold antler down there, and I was like, oh, my God, it's moved on. Dumbest thing ever. Anyway. Um, here's what I learned. <laughs> I want to talk about E.G. Marshall just for a quick minute, who plays the mortician in this. He um, was in a lot of different television and film productions as kind of, you know, like a character guy. People who are horror fans from and loved the – creep show movie the first one he was in the segment was it called don't bug me don't I bug think, me yeah anyway he's people would know him if you were a fan of of that fun film anthology which is awesome and if you're an 80s kid you probably grew up watching creep show you would know eg marshall from that for sure but one of my favorite things that he participated in was he was the host and narrator of a radio program that ran from the mid-70s to the early 80s called CBS Radio Mysteries. And they're basically a revival of the old radio mysteries, like Lights Out, things of, of that nature, um, back in the 30s and 40s. And they're great. There's all kinds of different recognizable voices there. Um, you get, uh, oh gosh, and I'm, I'm just on the spot now, so I'm blanking on names Fred of Gwynn. people. Fred Gwynn is in several episodes, you know, AKA Herman Munster or AKA sometimes dead is better. Um, Pet, Pet Cemetery. Cemetery. <laughs> anyway. Um, and also you get, um, who's, there's a few, there's a few recognizable seventies and eighties actors that show up there. Um, Oh, your favorite guy. He was in, UHF. Oh, Kevin Murphy. Kevin Murphy does several episodes. Yeah, Kevin Murphy. Yeah. Great. Anyway, sorry, I'm babbling about Radio Mysteries. I'm gonna post the link to their website because you can play, download, and For stream e. all of these awesome. They're about like 40 to 50 minute radio stories. Some of them are adaptations of classic literature, like Poe, a little bit of Lovecraft here and there, and then more contemporary stuff. But it's it's so good and it's it's really fun if you listen to a lot of radio or you listen to podcasts and you like storytelling podcasts and you want to you know something that's a little bit of a throwback i recommend checking it out so i'm going to have the link on our page bahanadavenport.com and i'm also going to link the nbc site for night gallery too in case people want to binge a bunch of night gallery yeah but so back to the episode um, yeah. yeah so i like, just had uh Oh, uh, I just had a, a final tangential thought on this. This episode also really reminded me, if there's any comic book fans out there, I um, this reminded me a lot of Sandman number 55, the issue called Ceraments, which is basically an entire issue about burial rites and the way that different cultures treat funerary rites and how they pass on their dead and things like that. And I thought that this was uh, a, a, a related and interesting take on some of our cultural norms about how we treat our dead. So... Cool. Yeah, yeah, I've always heard so many good things about that series, and I regret that I haven't read any of it yet. It is apparently free online. You can obtain it perfectly legally now, and you can read oh, it really? online. Yeah. 
I can I, I, I can give like, you guys a link to that later. I have the first, I think, six anthologies of Sandman, like the the paper trade uh, collections. Mm -hmm. um, but they have like an enormous, like three book hardbound, like multiple hundred pages annotated Sandman that is truly incredible that you can read at the the Reed College Library. Yeah, they also have, um, if you're in Portland, the Multnomah County Library System has a couple copies of that exact version, which the, I the started to read because it was the library and like I did a lot of library stuff, you know, but like it's so sought after that it took forever for me to get it. And then I didn't really get into reading it fast enough. And then they required me to give it back because people were waiting, you know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Basically, it's if you do it from the library, well. you got to get it, read it quick. <laughs> or you can support your local book or comic book store. And just buy it. Yeah. 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 You, you can order things like that. Like if you're at like a comic book store or a bookstore, you can request that they order it for you and still like get what you need and also support your your local small business because like they all order their merchandise through like national booksellers um so that's a really good like uh for me whenever i want to order a graphic novel that's not necessarily like in print anymore or um it's not in the store where i'm at the the comic book store i go to the most often in portland is called books with pictures i think mm -hmm. that's it and it's a, it's a comic one. book store on southeast division it's in the old Longfellow's bookseller building. Um, and she's incredible. Like she she orders stuff all the time, like blatant plug for the woman who owns that store, whose name I don't know. She actually donated a bunch of uh, single issue trade papers to um, the nonprofit I work for. And it was amazing. It's like hundreds and hundreds of That's just cool. single issue comics. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, big, big plug for... Uh uh what is it books with pictures and also the sandman comic written by neil gaiman so <laughs> check them out well talking about night gallery and yeah. back to the episode again um just to wrap it up i did love um like in the end the the kid who has had his down on his luck his whole life and and is wanted for murder He's like in this mortuary home now and he sees a dead body in the other room and he's like, okay, sure, that's okay. One dead body, no big deal. The dude's having a birthday party or something for the dead guy. That's cool. I'm going to take a nap on this couch. And then he goes down to the basement, sees there's a bunch more dead bodies, and then he's concerned. One dead body. <laughs> Five more dead bodies, not cool with this. And now he's going to go give himself up to the cops. Well, the mortician <laughs> implies to him that he's home now. So I would, you know, I'd be afraid too, thinking that, well, in order to be part of this family, you pretty much either have to be cool with hanging out with all these corpses and pretending they're alive or be a corpse right. and join. And, and he's bleeding out. So he's, he's thinking this is going to be his fate. Right. And the police are knocking at the door as he's trying to figure out, you know, do I, which, which terrible fate do I accept? Right. And, and he ends up 
Um, you, you hear two gunshots. Yeah, because he ends up pulling a gun on the mortician, and we don't see it, but there's it seems like there's a struggle because when the police are able to open the door and come down to the basement, they because they hear the shots, they go down and they find the party scene with all the corpses, and they find the now-dead young um, fugitive slumped over in his chair, and E.G. Marshall's character as the mortician is saying, you know, this is my family to the police officers who are horrified right. and explaining that who everyone is and that that the <clears throat> fugitive he's now calling his son and he right. is starting to slump over because he's also been shot. So he ends up dying in that scene. And the two police just back out of the room. Which is <laughs> <laughs> the only thing you can do at that time. <laughs> You're like, nope, none of that. None of that. Above my pay grade. Time to call for backup. A lot of backup. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You're going to have to go get a mortician or a coroner from another another region. Because <laughs> I feel like that was the guy for that area. Right. Anyway, did anybody else have anything else they wanted to add or discuss about this segment? I just wanted to ask a quick question mm-hmm. um, about this episode. So... The, I didn't notice it until Desi Arnaz Jr. is descending the staircase to go see, like, the final party he will be attending. Um, <laughs> but all the picture frames on the wall are, like, askew, and also there's no pictures in them. Is it like that when he goes up the stairs? Do they show that, or is this Yeah, like... so what it is, I think it's just because it's it's implying that it's down in the basement and like, you know, the basement is it's like uh, the attic or the garage where like all your stuff you're not using gets put. So I think it's just that he has like old picture frames that don't have pictures in them currently down there. Well, like if you went into our storage shed in our backyard right now, you would find some empty picture frames hanging on the wall as well. Although we do not have corpses having a party in the shed. Just FYI. But yeah, no, I think that's just, it's just storage. It's like, you know, sometimes it's easier to hang stuff on the wall. I mean, there's Mr. Bones, but he's plastic. (laughs) And he's actually in the room with us right now. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was like a, like a spooky detail. Like, whoa, there's picture frames, but there's no pictures. (laughs) Like, this is how disturbed this guy is. Yeah. No, no, I think it's just storage. I was trying to figure out, though. Was it like a necromancy thing that he like was keeping these bodies preserved or was he taxidermying them? Well, it's a necrophilia thing. Because like I it was definitely implied that he's been collecting these people for a while. Well, I think he embalms everyone, but I don't know what he's doing to preserve them. And they don't go into detail because, again, early 70s network television, they're not going to get real grisly. So I I think you're kind of left up to your own imagination. But, yeah, I'd I'd probably guess it's like a taxidermy type situation. Yeah, it looked like taxidermy. I don't think people are dying every day where he's at. I think there were a lot of – this is It's just been a really bad week (laughs) in this town. I think he's been doing this for years. (laughs) Really bad week in the town, and the, the mortuary guy cracked. Right. Yeah. There's too much work. I'm only one man. I need a family to talk to. He really should have just gotten some pets. Yeah, 
a nice a nice portrait cat would have been great yeah i feel like that's probably a thing you know like i'm sure there's like a funeral home cat probably here or there yeah just make sure it's well go off on another tangent but a quick tangent like (laughs) the need of a lonely eccentric to have a pet is essentially the whole plot of the movie human centipede ew (laughs) not watching that yeah but it's a really sad movie if you remove all of the um human centipede parts of it all of the uh, torture and body horror yeah right right but so like he creates the human centipede because he first created um three dog which i not i don't need to describe what that is it's pretty self-explanatory and he (laughs) loved dog so much but three dog just like couldn't like three dog died and so he's like i need to find a more robust animal why couldn't he just have three dogs and give three dogs a good home and feed them and care for them but like also three dog you know like we don't we don't know that three dog was unhappy (laughs) (laughs) but it was very sad um german scientist who is very lonely um just mourns the loss of his beloved pet and can't stand the loneliness so he creates human centipede I like that you're creeped out by the, the, <laughs> the mortician character in this segment who's, like, kind and lonely and, and not killing anyone for his weird craft project, but you're sympathetic to the doctor in Human Centipede. Okay. That makes sense to me. Anyway. I mean, mute. Neither one of them are magicians, so I'm not really quite <laughs> sure what the tipping point is for you. I think it's it's definitely like a case by case basis. Yeah. Oh man. All right. So our fourth episode. <laughs> oh man, see this is what we mi- this is what we missed in our Ichabod Crane episode. I'm sorry you weren't able to make it, Val. <laughs> Maybe I just say that I, so I did watch the movie and it was incredible. <laughs> you just actually, watched Actually, if you, if you have any thoughts you want to add about that after we wrap up with this, you're totally, you know, welcome to give us, give us your 50 cents. <laughs> I, yeah, I can give you like my, my, my hot two minutes on yeah, why that movie is great. It'll be bonus content. <laughs> yeah. Special talent. Yeah, I'd be totally willing to do that. Bonus episode of Haunted Davenport. Val talks about Ichabod Crane and Goldberg. <laughs> well, we're not gonna we're not gonna do a whole episode. We're just gonna get her thoughts. Or gold yeah. blooming. Yeah. Sorry. This discussion. Gold blooming. My gold blooming. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So our final segment is from season two, episode thirty-nine. It's titled "The Diary," and it's from November tenth. 1971 as its original air date it was directed by William Hale and also written and adapted by Rod Serling and this stars Patty Duke as a a I guess she's basically like a film slash society critic commentator and she's pretty terrible to everyone all the time and one of her favorite victims who is a star who's kind of in the decline of her career decides to pay her a visit on new year's eve and brings her a diary that predicts the future and shenanigans ensue so good i i 
I love this premise, this um, <laughs> this horror thriller premise. Um, I just it. Uh, I, I I love it when you give somebody a vision of the future and they do everything they can to change it, and that's all that happens is the exact thing that they wanted to avoid. Yes. Is yes. there any one better at playing like a plucky hot snob than Patty Duke? I don't think so. I really like, don't think so. It's Neely O'Hara. It's she's amazing. And she's just like dunking on poor Virginia Mayo, who had the audacity to become middle-aged. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, how dare you? It's uh... inc- like Patty Duke gets what she deserves because she was being like a class A brat, but also a horrible like, human being, yeah. Just watching Patty Duke is one of my favorite pastimes. I love her. And I, I like yeah, incredible. I'm not the hugest Patty Duke fan, but there are times where I really enjoy her performances, and this is one of my favorite night gallery segments. I love her in this. I think she does such a great job of playing this cynical, hardened, nasty person who is losing their mind. And you feel a little sorry for her, but not that sorry for her, because she just kind of has this coming. And also, it's just filled with, the sets for this are really fun. You know, she's got the, like, um, desirable, modern party girl pad from, you know, it's got this late 60s decor in it and her new year's eve party is ridiculous for some reason they've paid a little person to dress up like baby new year and they're just harassing the hell out of him because it's the 70s although i do love i do love that like when the drama flies between um virginia mayo and patty duke at the party he's the first one to like run over he's like you know he almost needs popcorn he's just like i'm gonna watch this Baby New Year is into it, but it's just, and also her clothes in this, like she has these really fun outfits and her hair is just huge and almost a character in and of itself. And it's, it's just a really fun episode. And there are people like this character out in the world that are just, their professions are based on cutting people down. They create nothing. The character kind of reminds me of, um, the, the, the woman who the character in Last of Sheila was based on. Oh, the the agent. The agent. The one that Diane what Cannon was her plays. Name? Yeah, it was very much like that as the performance. Type of a personality. Well, and there were you know Hollywood gossip colonists and reporters that totally menaced and destroyed actors and actresses' careers. Seventies was a weird place for movies. She has for some of the movie industry. She has some of the best lines though. Patty Duke's character in this, you know, she's talking about how Hollywood is the Hondas and the Fondas, and she's now and she's you know her whole rant against Virginia Mayo's career and how she's out of touch and out of time, and and then when things start to go bad, she's you know she just has. Her her lines of dialogue in this are, are especially good. Everything everything I touch turns to graveyards. <laughs> it, it's incredible that okay, so Joan Crawford, a perennial Hollywood legend, is in the pilot episode um, of Night Gallery, and then we have this like 
season two, like, is it like 1971, 1972? 1971, um, yeah. Where Hollywood has changed immensely since the fall of the, like, the studio system. And, like, we're not, like, Hollywood just, like, looks really different. It's flashier. It's, like, you have these, like, underdog stars who are able to, like, rise to prominence you have less of these actors who have like a hundred film credits under their belt because they were like assigned to a studio as a contract Mm -hmm. player and it's funny because like virginia mayo's character in this episode is essentially like playing a version of joan crawford's actual life when joan crawford middle age before whatever happened to baby jane um like she just had this career slump because she was middle-aged and like there was nothing wrong with Joan Crawford other than the fact that she wasn't like 20 anymore and I like that's the story for a lot of actresses but Joan Crawford's career was so so famous for that that specific slump that she went through acting wise that it's just like heartbreaking to like watch Virginia Mayo like she dies she doesn't deserve Mm -hmm. that she does yeah she decides that her life is over because she's aged out of Hollywood popularity. And I think that's so sad when you think that there's nothing else that life could have, you know, that your life doesn't have any other worth and that there's nothing else that life could offer you or that you have nothing else to offer other than your physical appearance, which is just, you know, how women in Hollywood and also just as a society, you know, that's, that's a message that women get all the time. It's like, don't get old. And like, well, the alternative is death. So no, thank you. Yeah. Like that's a yeah. bunch of BS, but she's, yeah, she's, she's a, a really sympathetic character in this. And I almost kind of wish we could have had a little scene of her purchasing the diary. Cause she describes this little out of the way shop where she had to pay a lot for this, this diary. Like she went to some little witchy shop on some, you know, back street, in the city and I would have loved to have seen inside the witchy shop and have somebody caution her about the power of the diary. (laughs) So what ends up happening and it's, it's kind of especially remarkable because, you know, the diary is supposed to tell the future. What happens is it fills in one page at a time and only gives, um, only gives basically one day's advance notice of the future, but it shows up, in is it Neely is her first name the Patty Duke's Patty Duke's character oh no Neely is her name in Valley of the Dolls oh in Valley of Valley of the Dolls okay I was gonna <laughs> yeah. say I don't remember the name of the of of I don't remember what her actual name is in this Stephanie? what was it I think it's Stephanie I don't know why I think that you know, I, I I should write down more details. I'm never sure if anybody actually really cares about those things if they're going to watch it themselves. But because we always but just identify the Patty actors' names, <laughs> right? Her character finds um finds the pages written in her handwriting, which lends everybody else to believe that she's just writing in it and then dissociating herself from the fact that she's writing in it and having a psychotic break. And it gets yeah. progressively darker and darker, but it starts with New Year's Day reflecting on the death of Virginia Mayo's character. And so she's spooked by that, but then things start to happen more and more, and it results in the death of her boyfriend 
and she frantically tries to prevent it and she can't and she probably actually her erratic behavior lends itself to him having an accident it seems like there's a lot of self-fulfilling prophecy yeah and she just is completely becoming you know she's unraveled as the story goes on and she i mean it's not a real long segment so we just say she ends up in a mental institution that she checks herself into because after Jeb, whose name I remember for some reason, the <laughs> boyfriend, after he dies, I guess because you hear her talk about him a lot, um, she says, you know, the only person she ever really truly loved, she notices that the pages aren't filling in anymore. And she assumes that she must have killed herself in the future. And so she checks herself into a mental institution and we see her later in a straitjacket in a cell screaming and freaking out that she needs to see her psychiatrist and he shows up and she says I figured it out I I thought that I killed myself but really I might have you know had an aneurysm or a heart attack or all these other things and they're all telling her she's perfectly happy or healthy and she says you know people perfectly healthy people just suddenly die all the time so I need a pen. And, you know, they explain, oh, well, you said no pens because you didn't want sharp objects. And so she's flipping out. She's like, I need a pen. I have to fill in the diary so I right. don't die. Because as long as she fills in the diary, then that day's happened now. And we get into yeah. we get into a weird reveal that's kind of a little bit logically confusing because she, she asks for the pen. She's screaming for the pen. And her doctor... Uh, goes to the nurse's station and says, you know, can you hand me a pen? And the nurse is like, you're going to give her a pen? And he says, oh, you must be new here. She asks for a pen every night. She's been here for five years. Oh, and yeah. and we show, then, then we're, we cut to him showing up at her door with the pen. And so it leaves a few questions because you see the diary on her hospital bed. Or we're assuming it's the diary. But she either writes in it every day and is just so psychotically broken that she doesn't recall that she's writing in it every day, even though there'd be physical evidence, or she must um, decide not to write in it last minute for some other reason that spooked her, but it's not really explained. So it's a, it's a little bit, it leaves you wondering, how does this work exactly? In addition to the fact that it is a really chilling outcome, because you wouldn't think, you know, when you see the premise, you're like, oh, she's probably going to end up dead, too, because this is a dark story and it's cursed. But you don't think she's going to end up in a, in a padded room, basically, at the end Possibly of it. worse than dead. May I point out that um, Patty Duke's character in Valley of the Dolls, Neely O'Hara, also winds up in an institution? I was wondering, I've will. never seen Valley of the Dolls, and so I was oh, thinking, gosh. I've seen lots of stills from it and read about it, but I've never watched the movie, and so I was wondering, because it's kind of like a young women in trouble type of movie. It is incredible. Like, I, it is incredible. I am such a huge fan of that movie, and... I don't know why. I, I love Patty Duke. She's incredible in it. Um, Sharon oh Tate's in it. Sharon Tate is in it. And Sharon Tate, oh my gosh. She's incredible too. Her character, so sad. Very sad. Yeah. But like, Just Sharon Tate in general is so sad. Yeah. yeah she would have had such a, well, you don't know, but it seems like she would have had yeah. such an amazing career. She probably yeah, would have enjoyed like, being alive. She plays like, um, like her character plays like a hot girl uh, mm-hmm. with 
depth, but she never gets appreciated for like how smart she is because of her abusive relationship with her mother that leads to an abusive relationship with, you know, everyone. Yeah. But Patty Duke's character is like an, uh, like a young ingenue and she gets on those uppers because she's going to break into Hollywood. And then like, she, you know, she can't sustain that energy. Um, and she has like a nervous breakdown and she's like withdrawing from her pill addiction. So she goes to, she gets institutionalized and it's, it's kind of like a sad like reflection of Patty Duke's real life because Patty Duke uh, uh, lived with bipolar disorder yeah. for her whole life that wasn't diagnosed until later in her career. Mm. Valley of the Dolls is incredible. And I think that Patty Duke maybe gets like typecast a little bit because she is so, so good like at playing someone who is in an enormous amount of psychological pain. And yeah. she's also cute as a button. Like, look at her. She's so adorable. Sean Astin looks just like her. <laughs> we did um, the other, the other podcast that I do where I talk about retro television. Cause I don't know. That's, that's what I do now. Um, <laughs> I, we covered a Patty Duke movie earlier this year called she waits from around the same time period. And she plays a character that, um, light spoilers for She Waits, becomes possessed by a spirit, an angry spirit of a previous wife of this man that she's that she's now married to. And she, so she plays the really sweet, friendly, kind of easygoing version of, like, the original personality of the character that she's playing. And then there's the possessed version where she's, kind of spiteful and vindictive and kind of more like this character in the tales from the crit or not tales from the crits in the night gallery, night gallery episode. And, and it just, and I, I remember having that discussion with Joel and Peter who host that show, um, which is terror on the tube, by the way, if anybody's curious, I'm just going to shamelessly plug that show. Um, <laughs> we had this discussion about her performance in that. And I was saying at the time that I just, I don't buy because she's so good at playing evil and I don't necessarily think that Patty Duke was an evil person by any shape or form, but I think that she's just tapped into a lot of those darker feelings that she's just so good at playing a really unhinged, angry person that I just didn't really buy the sweet performance when her character was, you know, portraying like the normal, the normal version of this woman. It just, it was just so much more believable when she'd slip into the, the angry possessed ghost version. And I think that, yeah, she did get typecast for being, you know, in these kind of over the top dramatic roles, but she was so watchable when she was doing that. Anyway, that was a long awkward pause. I like how every episode that I've been on so far, it turns into like a love letter to a specific actress. Um, more than once, I think it's been Christina Ricci, but like, how do you do? <laughs> what a legend. I love her. She's so, so stinking talented. She had a hard life and she died too young and she was amazing. And I think this episode really shows what she's capable of and she just delivers this really witty, rapid fire dialogue that's just so great as far as like her you know, she's just got, she's got a really, she's got an acid tongue, but it's so, also so eloquent at the same time. She's so. like, I don't know, like, Allison, have you ever seen Gilmore Girls? 
which is no. like not, not a I don't like that show, but it has that same kind of like that quippy, intelligent, like whip smart, pretty woman dialogue. Like that's oh, sure. like Patty Patty Duke is like she's sort of like um like a nineteen seventies like mod era version of the the quippy smart Catherine Hepburn character. You right, know, she's like, beautiful. She's smarter than you. She's she's got those like like she's quick with a retort. She's snappy. She's sassy. She might be a hard drinker, but like in like a classy kind of way. I feel like Patty Duke is the reimagination of that for like the mid century. And it's definitely like, you can see it in other like 2000s TV shows where you have like a really intelligent woman character who's doing societal commentary. And like, I don't like Gilmore Girls, but I do think like the characters that they play on that, like they got some good lines. The writing is unbearably clever like it's so aware of its cleverness that it's hard to watch well didn't they also the same people create um miss mazel yes oh the writer exactly sure same yes the same idea where it's like midge mazel is so smart and so funny um that she is almost unbearable but i love yeah. the marvelous that's like my only problem with miss mazel and i love miss mazel is yeah. like sometimes while watching I'm like there's no way this would happen in 19 whatever 61 or whatever it's based in no one no one's ever that witty all the time you have your shining moments you right know, but... and nobody's like that like precisely on the button they're on the right side of history you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's a it's got a a twinge of um Forrest Gumping oh yeah. Get me started on how much I hate that movie. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's so terrible. Um, you know what? I, I'd say I'd say change my mind, but don't. I don't even want to get into it. <laughs> You'll just love me. And then I'll just make fun of your love for that movie mercilessly. And normally I like to be a nice person. But I wanted to say that I think the Catherine Hepburn comparison to this performance with Patty Duke is, is really apt, and I really like that. And I think I... I you know, we can't ask her now, but I kind of wonder if Patty Duke was a Hepburn fan growing up as a young actress. It wouldn't be surprising. Yeah, because Catherine, yeah. like, I mean, I I think that, like, the, the wheelhouse of media that I really love consuming is, like, strong, plucky lady characters. Um, like, I will shamelessly gorge on information and media about like a plucky upstart with a smart mouth and you know I don't want to like look too too far into that but um so Val what you should uh research then if you don't already know about her is Sue Mangers I think Mangers Mangers or Mangers um (laughs) anyways she was what I was saying earlier the talent agent from the 70s that also could be slightly inspiration for this character yeah Uh, she was just balls to the wall crazy like doesn't (laughs) care what anyone thinks about her she just has to make sure all of her talent became stars and she's slightly a inspiration for um susie in miss mazel as well yeah, a lot of people, a lot oh, of famous yeah. people had her as an agent and think of her fondly, and so you'll get and performances so, that are sort yeah. of riffing on her. She churns up 
as a cultural reference in people's dialogues all the time in movies. Not like actual literal reference to her, but like they copy her personality. And she's, she's portrayed like loosely, but it's pretty much supposed to be her by actress Diane Cannon in this really great murder mystery on a yacht story called The Last of Sheila that I think, Val, I think you would enjoy. It was uh, written by Anthony Perkins and Steven, Steven Sodheim, and it's oh. it's full of puzzles and intrigue, and it's really fun. I do really love a yacht murder mystery, like the cat's meow. Well, apparently, um, Ryan Wilson cited it as one of his inspirations for Knives Out. So Ooh. I think you would I think you would enjoy it. Wait, I mean, yeah, mean it's re- a great movie. Do you mean Ryan Johnson? Sorry, Ryan Johnson. Yeah, what did I say? Yeah. Ryan I th- Wilson. I think you said Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson. <laughs> I don't even know. It's I'm running on like five hours of sleep. Sorry. I used to work with a Ryan Wilson. <laughs> no, that's totally okay. But like, not like to get back to the episode very, very briefly. Um, the nurse in the mental asylum is the bionic woman, right? Oh, is it Lindsay Wagner? I did not even notice. I don't, I don't think it, maybe, I don't think it was. Because, like, I saw her name in the show credits, and I'm like, that's, that's, uh, Jamie Summers or whatever, right? Like, the bionic woman. I don't know. That's, yeah, possibly. She did look familiar, but that's not something I ever saw. But it's like, um, I'm thinking that Lindsay Wagner was, but I might be confusing that with another show. This predates Bionic Woman, so she wasn't famous yet. Um, it's just one of those things that, like, I've seen, I've seen that show, so she stands out to me. Yeah, definitely. Man, well, does anybody have any, anything else they want to say about this particular episode before we wrap it up? Nope. Uh, I'm all good. Well, I think. Oh, go ahead, Val. Oh no, I said I'm. I'm same. I'm good. Okay, cool. It's just so we're still getting used to. I mean, even though I've been doing this for a few months, doing the Skype thing because it's hard sometimes with the audio. Since Drew and I are using two mics and like one computer, we can't like do headphones, and so it's, sometimes it's hard to tell if we're talking over each other. So apologies to the listeners for those moments when we're kind of cutting each other out because it's just a thing that happens with Skype. But I did want to say, I think we're definitely going to revisit Night Gallery again next November, perhaps. And there's so many good episodes. If you're a fan of horror anthologies or um, you like 70s television, that's a little bit spooky. Not, you know, it does go dark, but it's, it's got such a great um, list of, of actors and actresses that that show up in all these episodes. Most of the episodes are really well written. And the fact that you can stream them through NBC.com, I think I think it's NBC.com. It's definitely their home website. And I will post a link on our page so that you can just directly access that. Um, it's You can watch all those episodes for free. If you're already a fan of this show, which seems likely if you're listening to this, I'm going to say... If you have a Blu-ray player, DVD player, you can pick these up on DVD for fairly inexpensive. It's under 20 bucks a season, and I think you can buy all three seasons now for like $35 on Amazon, something around that ballpark. Prices tend to fluctuate, but because these DVDs are still in print, 
now is a really good time to acquire them as physical media if it's a show that's important to you because you never know how long stuff's going to be available streaming stuff comes and goes and if you're a hardcore fan of night gallery it's a really good time to own it because you know you can pick up i think we just recently purchased season two for about 13 dollars on amazon so i don't like to plug amazon too much just because you know there's a lot of things that are problematic about that company and um, one of our county's largest COVID outbreaks is from the Amazon um, plant in Troutdale, just outside of Portland. So I feel weird suggesting that people support them, but this is probably the best avenue to pick up these DVDs for a good price. Um, but yeah, again, I say it's a great show. I recommend owning it if you can, if you're so inclined. And definitely, if you've never seen it before, go check it out for free on NBC. So, so we're. Do we need to start adding uh, take a drink for a physical media? Oh, every reference? time I tell people to buy <laughs> something. Buy physical media. Now take a drink. Well, it's just, you know, we have so many streaming options, but it's really frustrating when you find, you know, you're looking for something, especially if it's something older or a little bit more of a cult following type of, you know, movie or show where you have to really hunt to find it, even, even to just stream to rent, you know, yeah. like it's. There's just been so many times I've tried to find something. Um, one really great example is we want to cover the Disney TV movie Tower of Terror, which I've mentioned multiple times this year. Um, I actually ended up breaking down and buying it, and I was able to get it. You could actually buy it from the Disney Store website, but I was able to get it from like Best Buy for five bucks. But you can't stream it anywhere. It's just about impossible to find other than like a really crappy version on YouTube where it's like a tiny screen surrounded by floating stars and you know that kind of nonsense but it's just it's up to the people who own the licensing whether or not stuff gets released right. at, on physical media at all or even if it ever gets any kind of streaming or digital rental options so. and there's a possibility when that last DVD they printed sells they never print anything again right you know and, and it's and it's, you know, it could end up on Disney Plus at some point, but who knows? And that's not necessarily a movie that I think is so important to own. But if you grew up loving something and it was like a childhood favorite, you might want to have that, you know. Maybe you want to show it to your kids. You want to have it in your spooky Halloween library, you know. Um, so I definitely think, I do think physical media is still important. And I think it's nice to be able to have control over what you want to watch rather than being at the mercy of all the streaming giants. And so. what you're allowed to watch currently. Yeah. So end of end of my lecture on physical media for this take, episode. Take a drink. <laughs> Great. Um before we before we say goodbye for, for this one, I wanted to include a small correction. Last time when we gathered, I was uh plugging our friend Joel's uh coverage of Werewolf the television series. He's sidecasting over on Retro Movie Geek, they have, um, they usually do retro movies, and then I do Terror on the Tube with Joel and Peter periodically, but he does this also additional sidecast where they're going through every single episode of Werewolf, the television series, which was from the late 80s, and we were making Wolf Cop jokes mistakenly, because I have not seen the show yet, I listened to a couple episodes, but I had it stuck in my head that the main character was a police officer. And so even though I listened to the episodes, I still didn't quite, like, I, I didn't get that out of my brain. So apologies for saying it was a wolf cop. I think I thought it was kind of like a, a, what was it, um, 
Knight Rider type storyline where you have, you know, this guy is on this quest. And so I just somehow thought Wolf Cop and then Joel, or not Joel, and then Drew and I were making Wolf Cop jokes in our Halloween episode. So apologies to Joel, apologies to fans of Werewolf the TV series. We totally botched that one. But you should still check out his podcast and you so should still check out the show. Cop? It's not. Oh. No, uh, I'm sorry. Biggest uh, letdown of 2020. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Great movie. Well, I think we said that last time, too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway um, we hope you will join us next month. Uh, we will be bringing you something. We don't know what it will be yet. It'll be a surprise. <laughs> but a surprise just like yeah. us. And also, I have to say, Drew and I are working on another Dark Shadows episode. So sooner rather than later, we hope to get out another Dark Shadows sidecast to you guys. But we... Thank you always for listening. Um, unless anybody else has anything they want to share or announce before we sign off. Andy, Val, Bueller? Um, don't, <laughs> no, don't have anything big going on right now, really. Just, uh, you know, living living in 2020, doing what you can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same. Just hanging out. <laughs> Just living. <laughs> All right. Well, with without uh, without any other comments, I guess I'll just say thanks from all of us at the Haunted Davenport. We hope you are having a safe and happy holiday season, and you'll be hearing again from us soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Don, the world is so full of a number of things. I'm sure we should all be as happy as. But are we? No. Definitely no. Positively no. Decidedly no. Uh-uh. Short people have long faces, and long people have short faces. Big people have little humor, and little people have no humor at all. <laughs> and in the words of that immortal bard, Samuel J. Snodgrass, as he was about to be led to the guillotine, make them laugh, make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? <laughs> my dad said, be an actor, my son. But be a comical one, they'll be standing in lines for those old honky-tonk monkey shines. Or you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat. Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Make them laugh, don't you know everyone wants to laugh? My grandpa said go out and tell them a joke, but give it plenty of hope. Make them roar, make them scream, take a fall but a wall split a scene. You start off by pretending you're a dancer with grace, you wiggle till they're jiggling all over the place. And then you get a great big custard pie in the face. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Make them laugh, don't you? All the what? My dad. They'll be standing in lines for those old honky tonk monkey
All set, Roscoe. Well, here we go again. I think we 